Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing back in the text tonight. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Dana Harris last night. I loved that interview. That was so much fun. She is yeah. a gem uh, for the church. Yes. But thinking back to even the last week's text, we only spent time in eight verses. But I was texting you yesterday morning. I went to a diner to have breakfast and just work there for a few hours. And I spent like 45 minutes just sitting in Revelation 1-1, mm-hmm. just with a pen and paper, just just trying to diagram the thing out. And there's so much, even just in that verse, just trying to yeah. figure out what's in there, moving slowly. I think, and, and I'll, I'll say this, this is a big book. Revelation's a huge book. There's lots yeah, of chapters, is. lots of words. Yeah. You I found just that out when I started writing a commentary and I'm like, why did I choose a big book like this? Seriously, Jude, yeah. that's the one you need to write yeah, I should have done a commentary on Jude. <laughs> could be like the world's greatest expert on Jude. Yes. Yeah. But when you when you write on or when you're studying something like Revelation, so many words that you need to get through. It's You just yeah. want to move fast. And I, I this is the thing that, if, if I remember anything about my Greek class, which I did with you in seminary, you have to <laughs> go be a slow. lot. You remember yeah. everything, Vinny. Uh, I think I forgot more than I remember, but uh, you had a great professor. That's all I know. Yeah. Oh man. He, he was, you know, I'm yeah. not going to say he was easy on the eyes, but uh, he wasn't easy on the grade book, but, but you have, uh, okay, you so have now to go we deleted slow. that part out. We're going to go back to our regular schedule program. I had to edit out everything to, that you just said. Exactly. The last five minutes, but your Greek you have professor. to go slow though. When you're yeah. in Greek. Well, you just have to move slow because you're trying to figure out what is this word? How do I parse this word? Yeah. Uh, you, you just, it forces you to do that. So you, right. you're able to right. slow down and walk, you know, you're not running or driving through it. You're walking through it mm-hmm. and you're just able to see so much more. And so anyway, just sitting through, I was going to read through all of the first chapter of Revelation yesterday and it just ended up being the first verse because I got set. I just sat in it. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, as we go through the study, you and I, we're spending a lot of time in this over the next number of months. So we should encourage people move slowly and just right. sit and just, even when we go over a full chapter, just sit and park in a, in a verse right. or something. Yeah. 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 So today we're going to go through verses nine through 20 and yeah. uh, chapter man, one. we just, yeah, chapter one, we really start are introduced to how John describes Jesus. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, what we're going to look at is chapters 1, 9 through 3, 22 uh, over the course of the next who knows how many weeks. And this is what we're calling the first story. So the first story begins with John on the island of Patmos. He's going to see a vision of Jesus. He's going to be told to write what he sees and send it to the seven churches. So and, and he does that. That's the first story. When he's done writing. So the first seven, story or first scene? The first, I, I call it a story or right, a what scene. What do you call it? Okay, okay, okay. And the reason why I call it a scene is because he's in a particular location. And so okay. the next scene takes place in another location. But the word scene can have like, you can have scenes within the scene. So okay. it's, it's the first story. First story is John on Patmos, told to write to the seven, seven churches. And he does write the seven churches. When he finishes the seventh message to, to Laodicea, you're done. It's like that. that's the plot of the book was to write what you see and send to the seven churches. And he did. But all of a sudden, chapter four, he's, t- he's like, hey, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that I heard said, come up here. So it goes up into heaven. And now there's a new scene, new location new setting. He's up, he's up in heaven and he sees God on the throne. So that'll be the second story or the second scene mm-hmm. uh, in the book. So absolutely, this is very important. The setting for this first story, the seven messages, here we go. It's this, John's going to see Jesus and here's what he's going to describe and let's get into it. Yep. Okay. So uh, do you, should we read it for? Yeah. Why don't we read okay. verses nine through 20 chapter one? So. Okay. 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are those that are, and those are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Mm. Yeah, so what do you notice? Nope. I guess the way I'd start off here was, like, you know, what do you notice about John's introduction? He's like, when I'm teaching this as a study, I'm like, okay, what stands out to you? So it's kind of like, anything stand out? Um, yeah, it's funny because it, it, we, we talked about genre, mm -hmm. and so we know that this is an apocalypse that is in the form of a letter, and it's also a prophecy. It's got a loose frame of, a, of an epi epistolary framework. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. you especially see this in the first and the last chapter. There's there's elements of that. Right. Uh, and so I would say this still reads like a letter. And mm -hmm. like, I, I still hear it like a letter where mm -hmm. I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation okay. and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I, I hear, I'm going to use Paul language just because Paul wrote the most amount yeah, of right, books yeah. in the New Testament. And so we're very familiar with that in the Protestant tradition. So I'm hearing a lot of uh, just this pastoral presence of someone mm -hmm. wanting to connect with his audience. And, and he's being very clear in terms of describing where he's coming from. Like, right. he's your brother. Like, I'm mm -hmm. a fellow saint with you. I'm your partner. But what? Partner in the tribulation. <laughs> but this is this tribulation is happening in the kingdom and we have this patient endurance in Jesus. Like, mm. I mean, there's so much packed in that first half of that verse <laughs> yes. in terms of, of, of the description of how he introduces himself. Yes, exactly. And I would encourage those who are listening to stop and just really meditate on the description of Jesus here in this passage and who he is and what it means is we're going to parse it out. Hopefully and finish it. It should be one episode. We'll see if it takes us one or two. Uh, and just and really focus on that because of its of its significance. But let's begin with the fact that he is a fellow partaker in the tribulation kingdom and perseverance. Mm -hmm. And so one of the major points that we start off with is we go into this book saying that the book of Revelation is about the kingdom of God, which is one of tribulation that requires one to endure or to mm -hmm. persevere for it. It's not a kingdom of power, but it's a kingdom of endurance. Not a kingdom of power, but a kingdom of endurance. Yeah. So it's not it's not endurance as in endurance through the war like the conquering Roman army would. Right, it's right. it's patient endurance through the tribulation. Yeah. That I, I guess I could we could equivocate on power because in, in a sense, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of power, but it's power mm -hmm. that's manifested in love. Mm -hmm. So when I say it's not a kingdom of power, I mean it's power in terms of the, the way the world does power. Okay. Okay. Because like I've said before, right, that 
the cross is the epitome of power in both the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdoms of the world, they nail you to the cross. And that's how they that's how they manifest their power and make sure they control you, the subjects, by putting people on crosses. Don't you be like that guy. Whereas in the kingdom of God, Christ goes to the cross to exemplify his power and his love for the sake of so he does that for the sake of the other. So yeah, absolutely. And we see this climax in Revelation chapter five, which I believe we talked about last week. Yeah. Um, so so a word comes up here, which in American Mm -hmm. uh popular yeah. the theological circles it's weird to just hear the term tribulation because we oftentimes associate <laughs> this yeah. other word right before it the great tribulation so tribulation is it's used in the new testament a number of times uh the, the term great tribulation i believe only happens three times one of them we'll see in revelation mm -hmm. in the letters right chapter, yeah. yes. chapter seven also yeah okay okay and so how what is what does tribulation usually refer to in the New Testament, especially regarding the people of God? Okay, so let me let me frame the question, actually frame the answer this way first, kind of taking a step back. People will always ask questions like, you know, what view are, of, uh, of the end times do you hold to, pre-trip, mid-trip, or post-trip? And the answer is none of the above. And mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense to people because their understanding is that there's a seven-year tribulation and... Jesus is going to come back at the end of the seven years. Everyone agrees on that. And the church is either going to go up at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end. So which one do you hold to? And the answer is none of the above. Like, well, why not? Because I don't believe that the Bible teaches that there's a seven-year tribulation. Mm -hmm. So the concept of tribulation, as you're talking about, right? This popular end times eschatology that says, oh, at the very end of the history, There'll be seven years it'll mark or maybe three and some some say three and a half years right three and a half yeah because by the way the book of revelation only uses three and a half years so you're not going to get seven from the book of revelation but that at the end of history right before the return of jesus there's going to be this seven or three and a half year period of time that's a tribulation that all the plagues and the boils and the sun being scorching people and the water's being turned into blood and the stars falling from the sky all that happens then and then the end and then the end comes and the answer is no that's not what's happening so the first problem becomes that every instance of the word tribulation in the book of Revelation refers to trouble or distress or suffering on the part of the people of God. In other words, it's something that we endure. So it occurs in chapter 1, verse 9, and I'll put this in the show notes. 2, verse 9, 2, verse 10, 2, verse 22, and 7, verse 14. And it's the word philipsis. And your translations might not say tribulation, might say persecution. But throughout the New Testament, this is like the entire new time. And I have a chapter in my book, Understanding the Understanding the Eschatology, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. The second edition. Yeah, second edition. And we can put a link to that in the show notes also. Mm -hmm. But throughout the New Testament, the word tribulation refers primarily, if not exclusively, to what the people of God suffer as imitators of Jesus. So Matthew 24, verse 9. Mm -hmm. Jesus tells his disciples, they're going to deliver you to tribulation and you'll, they will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations on account of my name. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in me, you have peace, but in the world, you have tribulation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. Right now in the book of Acts, and this is in my book also, the word tribulation, it, technically it occurs five times, but there's two instances the book, that the word tribulation occurs in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter, um, mm -hmm. chapter seven. seven. And he's talking about the Old Testament story. So as far as the tri word tribulation is concerned, thalipsis, and, and by the way, the word thalipsis means like to, a crushing pressure. It, it's, it's just someone stepping and, and turning and like a press, like an olive press, mm -hmm. that kind of pressure there, undergoing this excruciating pressure. The three times that it's used in the book of Acts then 
it always refers to something that the people of God must endure. Mm -hmm. right? So Acts chapter 11, verse 19, Luke says, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution, and the word for persecution is uh, tribulation. And Acts 14, so these are the three occurrences outside of Stephen's sermon. Acts 14, 22, Paul is speaking to the churches of Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And he says, look, we have to go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. And the word, it's the word thalipsis, tribulation right there. We must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 20, verse 23, where Paul's talking to the Ephesian pastors. He doesn't actually want to go to Ephesus, so he calls them to Miletus. They come to the seaport and they meet Paul. It's like this cheerful, somber goodbye. He, he probably does see them again, but he doesn't think he will because he's going to go on to Spain and all the good stuff. And he, and he tells the church, the Ephesian elders, he says, listen, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that a imprisonment and afflictions, which is the word philipsis or tribulations, mm -hmm. await me. And Holy Spirit tells me in every city, tribulation or afflictions await me. So the word throughout the entirety of the New Testament refers to something that is a present thing that the people of God must endure. And there's a big, long thing behind it. I, I know we haven't, we didn't make it to Colossians, but if we were in the, if we made it to Colossians, we'll do that after we finish Revelation, we'll go back. In Colossians, Paul talks about that he, he want, he's suffering so that the rest of the church doesn't have to. The, the, mm -hmm. There's actually this idea of messianic woes. I don't know if, how much you've heard of this, Vinny. The idea was that the Messiah and the Messiah's people have a certain amount of suffering that they must undergo before the end comes. This is a Jewish mm -hmm. understanding. And there's certainly, Paul picks up on it because he, he refers to Jesus' suffering. He says, I must do my part in sharing and filling the sufferings of Christ. You're like, what? It's like, yeah, the sufferings of Christ have not been completed. So this whole theology of the New Testament is that the people of God must undergo a certain amount of suffering. Yeah. And the reason why this is so significant is because the popular understanding of the tribulation that's going to happen is that the church is going to be raptured out yeah. of the world. Many, right. Yeah, many, right. Yeah. And then it's it's the, you know, God's enemies who are going to have to endure the great tribulation. So this is something that we don't have to go through. We don't have to actually endure this. Yeah, and let's, let's park there for just a second. I know we didn't plan on this. And I think we talked about this before, and I don't want to beat this like every time we talk. Yeah. But the problems inherent in that kind of theology that basically says tribulation is something in the future that the world has to suffer and not mm -hmm. us draws an us them mentality. Mm -hmm. We're the good guys. If they become like us, they want to suffer. Oh, they're suffering. It must be because they're the bad guys. Okay. That's nasty. That's, that's, that's problematic. Extremely. When you are called, when we are called to love our enemies, you don't start from a, from a us them mentality that we're better than you and that you need to become like us. Mm -hmm. That's not a good place to start. Secondly, it also ignores the fact that the historical church and much of the global church today is suffering greatly. Yes. And so now, now what do you do with that? If suffering is something the world must endure, what do you do with the rest of the church that's suffering? In other words, well, we're blessed because that's why we're not suffering, which not, isn't necessarily inherent in this theology, but it's there. Wait a second. You know, and the idea I hear so often people go, well, you know, the stuff in Revelation isn't happening yet because what it's describing isn't true. And that's just, wait a minute. Are you talking about it isn't true for you or it isn't true for the church? Yes. Because for the church globally, it's really true, right? And just, we saw the news about the 400 churches in Manipur that were burned to the ground, mm -hmm. hundreds, you know, 50 or more pastors that were killed in northern, uh, northeastern India. And this is just a reality that the church faces. So it fails to recognize, I know you want to make a comment here, but let me finish the thought. And that is, it fails yeah. to recognize that we are a global body 
and that we're one body and many members, but it's not our context that, w- that we answer these questions from. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, we oftentimes use the American church mm-hmm. as the litmus for when when we could expect things getting better or worse. Uh, it's I, This is what was happening, you know, Obama is becoming president, therefore, are we in the midst of the tribulation now? <laughs> you know, it's because we're, you know, we have such a martyr complex in the American church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I remember those kind of conversations happening however many years ago it was. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, we're not looking at, okay, well, what about Nigerian pastors who are being beheaded? You know, right. what about, you know, just looking around the, like, we don't, we don't pay attention to the East at all in these sorts of things. What about the Chinese pastors who are being ripped from their congregations and elders in those churches who are being forced out of their homes? Right. Uh, yeah, how, how come that doesn't count? But it's only like America is the barometer for that. Right. And, and it's, yeah. So anyway, there's a lot to be said of that, but we're so just um, ethnocentric in those in those ways where it's just like we it, it basically surrounds us and we are the the center of the universe and everything is revolving around where we're at so very uh yeah the other context i sometimes put this conversation into is the fact that jesus's words to the disciples were very clear watch out keep watch be prepared mm-hmm. be ready you don't know when i'm coming back but if the master knew what time the you know the thief was coming he would have been ready the whole point of the new testament is be ready be prepared and what does yeah. that mean it means living the gospel faithfully, following Christ, imitating Jesus in all ways. But the idea that, oh, well, we're looking at suffering and tribulation as something future that I may or may not have to endure, because whether I'm a post-tribulationist or a pre-tribulationist, answer mm-hmm. that question, tends to have this attitude of, well, I just have to sit back and wait and wait till these things start to happen. So it be- yeah. you become a passive player instead of an active player, which means that we're not following Jesus's words of be ready, be prepared, and we're not actively zealous about it. It breeds complacency. And so one of the contexts I like to put this in is to say, you know, this is a brilliant ploy on the devil's part Mm. because Jesus calls us, go out and make disciples of all nations, go out and show the king, the world, what the kingdom of God looks like, manifest the kingdom to them, be Jesus to the world. Mm -hmm. And Satan goes, well, you know what I'll do? I'll make them like just passive observers. Mm -hmm. Let them watch the news and relish when earthquakes happen and people die. Yes. Right on. The sign of Jesus return. Like what? Aren't we supposed to mourn? Aren't we supposed to grieve? War breaks out. Oh, it's there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars right before the end mm-hmm. of Jesus, Jesus' return. So I'm excited when wars break out. You know, this mm-hmm. Russia thing's like this is the beginning, they're gonna invade it. It's like <laughs> people are dying. Mm-hmm. Aren't we supposed to be peacemakers? Yeah. And so I think it's a master ploy of the devil to actually get us to not do what we're supposed to be doing and instead mm-hmm. do the very opposite of it. So I think it's problematic in so many ways. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So the text goes on. First off, we need to go back to say this. John is their brother and partner in what? The tribulation. So this is something that he is experiencing and he's like, I know you're experiencing this as well. We're all in this together. Yeah. and in the kingdom yeah 
and in, man, there's so many Kai's here, right? Uh, so many ants and the patient endurance or in, you know, perse- perseverance. So okay. this, this is, you know, we should probably unpack this a little bit. Yeah. And I know we're kind of almost skipping over kingdom and it's my, my mistake there, but yeah, the kingdom of God is what Jesus brought when he mm-hmm. came. He was crowned. the So a kingdom needs a king. That's who Jesus is. He became to be the king. The kingdom of God is where God dwells. So it's not like a place like, oh, it's up in heaven. It's called the kingdom of heaven because that's the realm where God dwells. Mm-hmm. But it's God's sovereignty. It began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can say it with the baptism, but ultimately the coronation of Jesus was certainly the cross. The gospel mm-hmm. are making that abundantly clear. Crown of thorns. Name above it says that Jesus and Nazareth was king of the Jews. He's crucified for being the king. All that they mocked him with a purple robe, all that stuff. The gospel writers are bringing this out clearly that this is the moment of Jesus' coronation. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. So now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus mm-hmm. is actually the king already. It's present because the spirit of God dwells in our hearts. Yeah. And as the people of God, we manifest the kingdom. The kingdom of God is one of justice and truth that ultimately brings peace. And the point of that is, as we get further and further into the story of Revelation, is that the peace for the world comes through loving sacrifice for the sake of the other, not through manifesting power through war and domination. Those are the contrasts between the between the two, two kingdoms. And then, of course, that kingdom now requires patient endurance. It requires perseverance. And again, I, we can do this all day long if we want. It's always going to go back to the, to the parable of the sower. But the, the whole point of that was when we, when we went over the parable of the sower, we noted that and especially in Mark's gospel, but Luke does the same thing. The parable seems to end, I think it's Mark chapter four, verse 19. But the very next line then says that a lamp is coming, which most translations say a lamp is not brought to be put mm-hmm. under a, a bushel or, you know, but, but to be put on the lamp then. But the Greek says a lamp is coming. And the point of that actually is, it's the same parable. The parable continues because the point of that is Jesus is saying, I am the lamp and I'm coming not to be hidden. So I'm sowing you the seeds, and now you are to take those seeds and then make me known. Mm. You're, to, you're to put that lamp on this lampstand and let it be shine. And you're the, uh, Revelation, of course, we're the lampstand. Mm-hmm. You're just let that light shine before men. And when you do that, it will require perseverance. Mm. That's why the stones and the thorns in the parable of the sower are there. And the one who bears good fruit is the one who makes Jesus know, despite the stones and despite the thorns. Mm. And I think that's, that's so significant. So that's why I think patient endurance is actually necessary here. And so in one sense, you can say this is another theme or a dominant theme, of course, within the letter. Seven times, uh, the, and the, the Greek was hupomones. Your translation might say patient endurance. It might say perseverance. But it occurs in one nine, and, and I'll put these in the show notes. Two, 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 three, two, nineteen, three, ten. Now notice, those are all in the first scene, the first story. Mm-hmm. One nine, I'm your brother in faith in the perseverance. And then two, 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 three, two, nineteen, and three ten are all in this in the seven messages. And mm-hmm. then thirteen ten, after the description of the beast from the sea, oh, this requires patient endurance. What? Yeah. When I tell you who the beast is, you have to endure. And then in fourteen twelve, this requires patient endurance on the part of the saints. And the very next line in fourteen in chapter fourteen is, and blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh. All right. So John continues on to say that he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, uh, which is interesting because I like, I don't know, I always trick 
It's it's kind of a mean trick. Where was Revelation? Where where was John at when he wrote it? And he, they're like Patmos, and he's like, oh well, it doesn't say he wrote it from there. He was just there when he received the admission. We don't know one way or another. It uh, does say I was on the island of Patmos, which implies he's he re- not there now. He, exactly. So that doesn't. He, we don't know where he wrote it from. Yeah, the we final just know he edition. received the vision. Yeah. Yeah. So I see really good commentators that say he wrote the book on Patmos. Yeah, also, it doesn't say that. Yeah. Throughout the throughout the vision. And we'll call it one vision, but that's okay. He's told to write many, I think seven times, right? I think it might even be 12 times. Write this down, write this down, write this. So it mm-hmm. appears if he's obedient, he's writing things down while he's having the vision. And I do think he had a vision. And Dana and I discussed that just in passing there last week in our mm-hmm. interview with Dana. Uh, I think I think he's having a vision and he's, he's writing it down. But he clearly, because he's counting how many times this word appears, this word appears, that phrase appears, he's clearly constructing this as an artistic work by mm-hmm. compiling notes and being really careful as how, how he puts it down and using the delete key a lot on his, yeah. on his computer. Oh, I've said that one too many times. I was thinking about that, Bob. What did we do before we had computers when we were trying to write? Because I'm like, so I think he's compiling these things after he's uh, left Patmos. The question is, why was he there? And you, you could read it two different ways. I, he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, meaning I'm there because I want to preach the word of God. But most likely it means, and the almost consensus opinion in the scholarly world is that he's there not to proclaim the word of God, but because he was already proclaiming the word. He's he's in exile. Uh, He's been sent Mm -hmm. off. He's been banished. And I understand what would be this. If John is, the, especially if he's the Apostle John, and I think he might actually be the Apostle John here. He he calls himself John, so that's easy. We know it's John. Then he's a prominent individual in in the churches of Asia, as we'll discuss next week and in the weeks to come. Asia is a province in the western part of modern-day Turkey, mm-hmm. and the seven churches are prominent churches, not necessarily the largest ones there within that province. And John's probably the bishop, if you want to say it that way, of, the, of all those churches. So he's noteworthy. And so if there's a problem there, and he is the problem, then they're not going to kill him because that's, mm-hmm. it's going to cut. He's too much of a noteworthy individual. When the Romans persecuted the Christians during the next 300 years or so, they rarely did things to the bishops because the bishops were simply well-respected. You can imagine a bishop in an Egypt and Christian Egyptian church, or whatever they're, they're well-respected there. Uh, same thing. So the great persecution in the early three hundreds, that's when they started doing things to bishops, you know, mm-hmm. this is a full scale persecution. So it, anyways, it's, it's like a, it's like a mob movie where you can't whack a boss. So you get the, the lower level guys. I was saying we're Italian. Not as much as you are, but no, no. All right. Anyways, my grandma Gatterina is rolling over in her grave right now. So <laughs> Manavira, what did she think? Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, anyways, uh, the point then would be he would be sent off into exile. And the idea of going into exile is just get out of here, go to this island, be, have nothing to do with us. It was not a barren island. We know that the island was occupied. So it's not a it's not a prison in the sense that like, oh, just go survive there. As I used to think, you know, it's we're, not Alcatraz. Ta- no, no, no. Uh, it's. And it's actually a nice island. It's not, it's beautiful, great place uh, to be. But um, nonetheless, you're there, you're out, you're not, you're away from Ephesus, it's off the coast of Ephesus, and you don't have any more influence there. So most likely it means he was there because he was preaching the word of God. And so he is a prisoner. We do not have any indication, however, that this, that's a wide scale persecution going on. And think Dana mm-hmm. referred to that in our uh, interview with her last week. I don't, I don't think there's any wide scale persecution going on. I think the persecution in the book of Revelation is limited. Smyrna was facing it. You're about to face persecution for 10 days. And guess what? If they kill you, which they're going to, 
you will receive the, you know, you'll be resurrected, it'll be, it'll be good. Very limited, and but it was impacting John, and I think that's why he's on the island of Patmos. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. He continues on in verse 10, I was in the spirit, but this is a theme he uses four times throughout the book, and this kind of indicates new scenes that pop up. So I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. You know, in, in, especially in confessional reformed theology, the Lord's day is now Sunday. That's what mm-hmm. we refer to that. Is that how you would understand this being? It is. Um, I don't see any other way around it. I think you have two statements in the, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 20, that seem to indicate that Sunday is now the Sabbath day. And um, they got together the first day of the week and they, and they broke bread, which is an indication that they're having a meal. And it's like a communion meal. And I think it's Acts 20, verse 7. Anyway, so I do think that the Sabbath had been moved to Sunday. The New Testament mm-hmm. doesn't address it because I think it was simply universally done. It was just never a question. I mean, you don't, you don't write a letter to, to a church to say, hey, guys, you need to do this if everyone's already doing it. So I think it's been, uh, it's just simply assumed because everybody's doing it. Or it's not even assumed. It's just simply just the practice of, of what's going on. So I think this is a Sunday thing. And I think Dana's comment was actually really interesting that John was actually worshiping. I was in the spirit mm-hmm. on the Lord's mm-hmm. day. I was I was in an act of worship on the Lord's day. And I think that actually makes a lot, lot of sense. Yeah. Now the Lord's day, this is possessive here. So uh, another way, when we use possessives, like, so my son, Mateo, I'm Mateo's dad, or I'm the dad of Mateo. You could say either way, if, right. if, if you want to, you know, how you want to phrase it. So we could say the Lord's day or the day of the Lord would work, but we're not using, the, this isn't, isn't using that old Testament phrase. And is it because I, you, you know how, um, G.K. Chesterton has that famous line. He says, you know, John saw many strange monsters in his vision, but he saw no creature so strange as one of his commentators. Uh, have you ever heard that, uh, no. <laughs> that, that line? Uh, and, and so it's, it's one of those things where I, I remember one time. I know some of those people too. Well, you no, know, and, and I say, I heard one theory that says, oh, this is the Lord's day. Why, are, why aren't we trans- translating as the day of the Lord? This is um, mm, oh. end time. It's a, they're taking this in that, yeah. you know, super eschatological uh, sort of way yeah. in, a, in a futuristic kind of way. It's probably referring more to the day in which the resurrected Jesus was celebrated. Yeah, like we exactly. don't have to read all that theology. Yeah, yeah. It. So those who are listening, the day of the Lord is a key phrase throughout the Old Testament referring mm-hmm. to the time of the coming of the kingdom of God which we would all say, we would say the day of the Lord has already begun. The consummation hasn't happened yet. So we realize now in a New Testament world that the day of the Lord has come in Christ's death, but not in fullness until the return of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we would not say the day of the Lord and the Lord's day are the same or synonymous or yeah. interchangeable. Yeah, that, absolutely. And I would say it's called the Lord's day because it is indeed the day that we celebrate the Lord's supper, which mm-hmm. of course is either going to be Friday. He said, do this in remembrance of me whenever yeah. you get together, which I think means we should be taking communion every week. You're either going to do that on Friday, the day of the cross, which is a little bit morbid because you're celebrating his death mm-hmm. without the resurrection part of it, uh, or you do it on, on Sunday, which is the day of his resurrection. And I think the whole idea, by the way, is that uh, communion should be taken with risen bread, mm-hmm. right? Because, yeah, Jesus gave matzah at the Last Supper, uh-huh. which is unleavened bread, but he himself is the bread that rises. So when we take communion now, we actually take it in a fulfillment sense of bread that's rising. Yeah, and you could refer back to our one of the weeks in first Corinthians when yeah, we talked right. about uh, yeah, we yeah. communion and, and you mentioned that there I'm 
glancing through the text real quick in the first uh, number of verses, because I think this is our first simile, our first uh, metaphorical language, where now you have, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So we start seeing this imagery. Uh, So he didn't hear a trumpet. It's not like Maynard Ferguson was behind him playing something. He heard a voice like a trumpet. You know, what what do we mean by that? Okay, so this is going to be a problem throughout. Whenever we're we're teaching the book of Revelation to Americans or Westerners, most likely, pretty universally, because we are too prone to literalizing things without even thinking, realizing that we're literalizing things. The idea is, okay, John's having a vision. He either heard a trumpet or he didn't hear a trumpet. It's an either or. It's one or the other. And the point actually is John's writing literature. Mm -hmm. And so the language serves his literary goals and the literary goals is to connect it to the old testament trumpets uh, it's, it's totally irrelevant whether he heard a trumpet or not sure he heard one whatever that doesn't matter or he heard mm-hmm. something and it was like it doesn't matter that's not the point the point actually is to use phrases to link to earlier texts or to other texts or to this passage or that passage i'll give you an example here that i used in my bible study at the zoom study a couple weeks ago and it's kind of surprised people in chapters 17, 1 through 19, 10, it describes mm-hmm. the, the judgment of the great harlot Babylon. Yep. 21, 9 through 22, 9, it describes the bride, the wife of the lamb. Mm-hmm. You read chapter 17, verses 1, 2, and 3, and we'll do this, and we've done this before, but we'll do it again later, of course. 17, 1 through 3, and 21, 9, and 10, and they're almost identical. One of the seven angels of the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, come here, and he carried me away in the spirit to, to the wilderness in chapter 17 and to a great mountain in chapter 21. But the point of that is, the introductions are almost identical. Both sections end with John falling down at the feet of an angel to worship the angel. Hmm. And then the first time, chapter 19, verses, I think it's verses 9 and 10, the angel says to him, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. You think that John would have learned his lesson. Mm -hmm. But then in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, he falls down at the feet of the angel. And it even says, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. He He even says it's an angel. Angel said, "Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours." You're like, "Why would it, why would he do that twice?" And it's just, that's not what's going on. John's using the f- idea of falling down at the feet of the angel to mark the end. It's a literary marker. Mm-hmm. It, he maybe he did it twice. Maybe he didn't. That's not the point. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the vision didn't happen. Or I'm just saying we have to learn how to read this text from a literary perspective. And what John's trying to say literarily. Because that's where the meaning of the passage is actually embedded. It's not actually whether or not the, the sound actually was a trumpet-like sound, or was it trumpet-like, or was it actually a trumpet? That You see what I'm saying? So yep. we have to kind of, and we're just going to get stuck there a lot. So all right, the point of that, though, is this. The first thing to notice is, is a voice like a trumpet occurs twice. Chapter 1, verse 10, I heard a voice like a trumpet. And the second time is in chapter 4, verse 1. So in chapter 4, verse 1, this is really important. After these things, I looked and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. Okay. Now, what we said a little while ago and what we did in our session on the structure of the book of Revelation is chapter four, verse one marks a new scene or a new story because John's going to change locations. I was in the spirit and boom, he's taken up into heaven. So chapter one, verses nine through 322, he's on Patmos and he's in the spirit. Now in chapter four, he's in the spirit again, but he's taken to heaven. So it's a new scene, new setting. It's two different, two different stories, but they're connected. 
The two stories are extremely interconnected. And one of the reasons why we know it's interconnected is because the second story begins by linking it to the first story by saying, the voice which I heard, the first one, like the sound of a trumpet, was mm -hmm. speaking with me saying, come up here. Now, we'll talk more other, other links between the two stories. That's the first thing to note. One of the reasons why that's important is, and we'll discuss this as we get to the seven messages, a lot of pastors will go, I'm going to preach on the seven messages, like chapters one, two, and three, because yep. I can do that and not get in trouble. And I don't have to even be eschatological, which means the end times. I don't even have to talk about the end times or tribulations or, or raptures. Or I don't have to get in that, in that stuff. Don't cause any trouble to my congregation. I can preach the seven messages, and then I'll just get out of the book of Revelation and mm -hmm. go to Galatians or something else. And the answer is the seven messages are highly interconnected with the rest of the book. You mm -hmm. can't understand the seven messages well unless you understand the rest of the book, or vice versa, you can't understand the rest of the book unless we understand the seven messages very well. So it's very important to understand that these two stories are interconnected. And this is one of the ways we know it's interconnected is the fact that he hears a voice like a trumpet. Now, the question then becomes, well, what does a trumpet mean? What, what's the sound of a trumpet? Whether it was like a trumpet or actually was a trumpet or not, I think is, is irrelevant there or, or not significant. So trumpets have a lot of meanings. One, of course, it's a herald before a war, right? And mm -hmm. it's, you sound it before a war. You know, the, they march around Jericho seven days and the seventh day on seven, time, seven times with the trumpet sound. And of course, you know, the walls fell down. So the blaring of a trumpet off also, or a trumpet-like sound also accompanies God's appearance, most notably on Mount Sinai, when God appears to Moses in Exodus 19, verse 16, 19 verse 19 and 20 verse 18, uh, Moses hears a sound, something like a trumpet. So I think those are the two most significant things. And there's other meanings of, of trumpets there also, but I think those are the two most significant meanings there. Okay. So when mentions of trumpets in Revelation or the trump that is going to sound has nothing to do with the 45th president? I've literally heard this as a thing. This is, are you serious? I'm not joking. This is a thing. Yeah. No, no, I'm not joking. No, I've heard some. That, that's no way that's true. Not, not joking. Uh, <laughs> wow, I need this in writing. I need this in writing. <laughs> empirical evidence. Yeah, I need uh, empirical the, evidence. Other, the, the other thing I was going to say, I need, is I and you need to show me that AI didn't produce it either. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly, uh, it's on YouTube, so it's got to be real. But the other oh, thing okay. is, that, 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 that's good enough. I thought you were going to say it was on like CNN or Fox News. <laughs> I have figured this out though. What is the trumpet? It's obvious. It's Miles Davis playing Seven Steps to Heaven. So it's that's a musician's joke, isn't it? Right? It is. It's, yeah, it's, okay, you can check it. If, for everyone at home, you could you could type in Apple Music, Miles Davis, the Four and More album, great live album, Seven Steps to Heaven, fantastic band. All those guys are like nineteen and under. So I would I would go with that one. Anyway, let's go to the next question. <laughs> Music nerd, ADD, right there. Uh, so he's in the spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind a voice. Like a, like a trumpet saying, so what was this voice saying? Yeah. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So he's commissioned to do something now. Yeah. Yes. And this commissioning is very important also. So when we say, I will all sometimes default, the seven messages of chapters two and three are seven messages because they're prophetic messages. John's a mm -hmm. prophet speaking prophetically to the church. They all begin with thus says, or tare lege in, in, in the Greek, which introduces a prophetic statement or prophetic saying, but I'll default, I'll call them seven letters because that's just, I, I said it, they, I call it's them seven popular letters. popular nomenclature. It, it, yeah, yeah, it's just, we just call them the seven letters. And I think I was editing the podcast the other day. I'm like, oh, I slipped a couple of times and called them the seven letters when mm -hmm. we're, but there's seven messages. So John's being commissioned as a prophet to do, to write 
And that commissioning will take place in chapter 10, in specific as far as the story is concerned. He'll be commissioned like the prophet Ezekiel was commissioned in chapter 10. But this is very common language used in, in the prophets that, hey, write what you see and do this with it. Of course, mm -hmm. Jeremiah had to do it twice because the first time that they burned a scroll or whatever it was. Right? Yeah. So, and yeah. it's not actually a book, but that's, we call it a book here. It's technically a scroll. The, you know, books hadn't been invented yet. So yeah, yeah. We'll, just, we'll just use book. I call it the book of life, but the scroll in the father's right hand, I, I refer to as a scroll. Okay. So he tells us the churches, he names the churches in verse 11 that he was to write this message to. Uh, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, the one that was like a trumpet. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay. Uh, and in the midst of this was one like a son of man. So what do we do with uh, these seven golden lampstands? So the in the King James, don't they do, do they translate this as candlesticks or something uh, strange? Doesn't one translation do that? That's 12. Yeah, yeah. In verse 12, the King James calls it seven golden candlesticks. That sounds like Professor Plum in the poker room or <laughs> billiards room. The candlestick. That's what that's a, I don't yeah. know. So yeah. yeah. All right. So lampstands, the language and imagery of lampstands comes from the book of Zechariah in particular. And we discussed that briefly with Dana when we read Zechariah 4, verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, which is like an underlying thematic verse in the book of Revelation showing you the promise of the Holy Spirit because it's through the Holy Spirit. So the lampstands are very significant imagery. We'll get to that and discuss it in Revelation chapter 11 when we discuss the two witnesses. But the first thing to recognize now, or the next thing to recognize here, is that the imagery in the book of Revelation almost always, not always, but almost always comes from the Old Testament. Hmm. So, you know, we've discussed before a few times uh, the idea how Lindsay said, oh, John's describing the locusts and he's actually mm -hmm. their military helicopters because John saw nuclear warfare, but he didn't know what to describe it like. So he just used first century language to describe, you know, 20th century phenomena. Makes sense, actually, even though it doesn't work. And it's actually allegorizing the text, which is really kind of funny. It's not making it literal. Mm -mm. But what John's actually doing is he's taking his imagery from the Old Testament. And, and it's very clear because he's often, he only quotes the Old Testament one time. That's really interesting. But there are as many as 600 or more allusions to Old Testament passages, like you can identify this passage or this passage or this passage. There's at least 400 or more. And sometimes scholars will say as, as many as 600. Mm -hmm. And so in the lampstands, of course, one, they, they indicate the role of the people of God. Because he says, as you read the passage earlier, uh, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Oh, okay, so now he tells us. So one of the things I'd say about the imagery is don't get too caught up on it. The problem, the reason why it's so difficult for us is because we don't know the Old Testament well. And John assumes that we know the Old Testament story and the Old Testament text, but we don't. And so we're, we're the ones that are disadvantaged. John's readers, especially the Jewish converts to Christianity, they knew the Old Testament well, so they knew what the imagery was, and then they explained it to the Gentile converts. So that's not a problem. So the imagery comes from the Old Testament, and sometimes John even tells us what the imagery is. And note, when he tells us what it is, he never applies it literally. He never says, the seven stars, well, there's seven stars. He always says, Something like the seven stars are the seven angels and the seven lamps are, are the seven churches. Now, some will say, oh, well, what happens is the imagery is always literal unless John tells us otherwise. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. So, no, John's giving us an example of how to understand the imagery. And every time he gives us an example, it's always with a symbolic significance behind yeah. it. So the point then is the imagery of lampstands comes from the Old Testament, most notably Zechariah 6. Uh, I'm sorry, Zechariah 4. And it refers to, remember, lampstands are in the presence of God. 
and they they hold the light, which God is the light of, uh, inside the, the the temple itself. So, yep. Okay. He then finally describes Jesus. Yeah. So, in the midst of the lampstand was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white, like wool, uh, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were brownish bronze refined in a furnace his voice was like that of many waters and his right hand held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength i mean this is i mean this is like epic (laughs) so is that what we should expect though like this tongue does he do the gene simmons from kiss thing where he sticks his tongue out and instead of a long tongue it's a it's it's a dagger like is that what we're wow what an analogy did well, Jesus this time to Gene Simmons? Are you serious? <laughs> You're really going to go there? Well, who, give me someone else who's uh, iconic for doing that. Give How me about another, we uh... don't do anybody else. We just leave it as Jesus' this tongue to the sword, right? Let's just, let's well, just, I'm like, using like. Let's just, like I'm using simile. Just, there, right? okay, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm using simile just like John. Yeah. Well, Vladimir Putin is the first one that comes to my mind, right? And Donald Trump is second. <laughs> so uh, that's where I would go. Come you know, on. I mean, I, I, I can think of, um, you know, maybe someone like Ted Williams or, you know, Ted Williams. he's the guy that owns the Raiders now. Um, Tom Brady. I, shut up. Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> <laughs> you just told me to shut up on live I radio. Did. I think I said something worse in uh, in the text message you sent me yesterday. I think I said I hate you. <laughs> okay. I think you said shut up. So, but uh, I love you too. So it, yeah, there it's, you go. it's great because I, I get to carry my cross in this relationship. I get to love my enemies, you know, so uh, <laughs> the least of these. Oh, yeah, anyways, yeah. The description of Jesus in the book of Revelation beginning here is describing Jesus in all of his unveiled glory. The reality is this is the resurrected Lord whom we serve. This is Jesus. The Gospels kind of portray Jesus in his glory a little bit. I mean, it, it talks about him. We beheld his glory, right? Um, in John chapter one, even the letter of first John, like, you know, that, which was from the beginning, which we've seen, we, we, we've touched him and we, but he doesn't describe him. And the only passage you might have that's closest is the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus is transfigured. He goes up on a mountain. Mm-hmm. He's transfigured before the disciples. But even then there's not this great description of what Jesus looked like at the transfiguration. We just know he was transfigured. Then you have passages in Paul's letters where, you know, Paul will talk about, you know, who was in the very nature of God, you know, in Philippians 2 and things like that. But we don't have a description of Jesus in his full glory until we get to the book of Revelation. Because in the Gospels, when you see Jesus walking around town, like, hey, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his own head. I don't know the hour of my return. You, You see Jesus in his humanity. And yeah, he's doing miracles because the Holy Spirit's empowering him, you know, no problem. And he's making claims of equality with the Father. I'm working this day because my father works until now. No problem. But it's not until the book of Revelation that you see the kind of the description of Jesus in John 17. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Give me my glory back. And you don't ever see a description of Jesus in his glory until here. Now, Mm -hmm. also interesting, and that's this. In Revelation chapter four, John is taken up into heaven and he sees a throne and one sitting on it but he never describes the one sitting on it mm-hmm. from the throne around. It was like this emerald, like, you know, like a rainbow. It was, like, it was really cool. 
there were like four living creatures and 24 elders, were, you know, and there's a flame of fire and a glassy sea, but he never describes the one sitting on the throne. Now, what's also interesting is in Revelation 22, it says, we will see his face. Mm -hmm. His name will be on our foreheads. At the ultimate end of the story, remember in the book of Exodus, Moses was not allowed to see God's, you know what, Moses, I'm not gonna let you see my face, but here's what I'm gonna do. You go hide in the very back of that cave and I'll pass by and you can see my back maybe a little bit. But even then when Moses comes down from the mountainside after being in the presence of God, but not seeing his face, hey, Moses, like, you're, like your face is way too radiant. Can you cover it up? Because he's been in the presence of God. So understand, hmm. we don't see God described until, well, we see his face, but we do get this description of Jesus. So I think we need to stop and just meditate and go, you know what? The resurrected Lord, I, I don't know about you, Vinny, but when I think about, you know, who was Jesus? What was Jesus like? My immediate default is to go to the Gospels. Right? Mm -hmm. I just, I think of mm -hmm. a story in the Gospels. Or, yep. But the re answer to that question really is this passage here. Mm. I saw one like a son of man, and this is what he looked like. And look what happens. John's like, I fell down on his feet. And he says, hey, don't be afraid. So I think this is an, just something that we really need to meditate upon. All right. So the good news is we've had a great conversation about this. The bad news is we are on page uh, five of our 12 page notes. So, and we're at 50 minutes. So we probably should make this a two-parter. Okay. Um, so darn, I know we're going to right? talk about Jesus again next time, aren't we? Oh, we just, we don't want to rush through this. He's you know, you you just mentioned like this yeah. is how we should view him, and man, this is yeah, let's yeah. not rush through what the, so. uh, the symbolism of all these things. So, if we were to do a quick pass through, go back through the first, uh, I'm especially you know, I don't know, for me, starting back in nine and, and how we describe John, mm -hmm. and really I, for me, I was really connected with him. If we want to talk about what are we, like what's the what's the application from this yeah right exactly okay. <laughs> you know there, there's no imperatives in here it's not telling us what to do therefore go and feed the whoever like that's not here live holy like that stuff's not here uh, mm -hmm. for me though just sitting in here in terms of like how i would take this away and apply it or develop an ethic from it i mean you don't got to go further than verse nine yeah you know recognizing that we have brothers and sisters around the world who also are our partners mm -hmm. and they are in tribulation right now. Like as we speak, there's gnarly stuff happening to Christians. Yeah. And you and I, we're going to go to our beds and our suburban <clears throat> neighborhoods. You know, I have my alarm that I'll turn on. I have, you know, I, I'm going to go to my church on Sunday morning and I'm going to teach and I have zero fear that police yeah. are going to come in and right. stop me from doing that. Like that's not a fear at all. But for the third year, uh, I'm teaching a class on politics and we yeah. critique, we openly critique our government and, and not right. from a, a partisan standpoint, but just the, the fact of, Hey, we're living in a pagan a culture and guess what the government we live in, the, the passports that we hold, that's Babylon. Yeah. And I have no fear that I'm going to get that. Someone's going to bust down my door and take me away from that. And, and so right there, the passages like this always stop me and say, first and foremost, how am I praying for my brothers and sisters who are right, in legit right. tribulation right now? And, and that's like, that's a thing. Um, and I don't want to minimize what pastors in America might go through, but nah, that, like <laughs> this is in terms of tribulation, that's different than just regular struggles of ministry. Yeah. Um, then sit with, okay, what does patient endurance actually look like? And am I prepared if, and when something mm. were to pop up, am I prepared to actually do that? Right. Um, 
my pastor oftentimes says your your destination informs your preparation. So how am I actually preparing for this if this is my destination? Mm. Um, and then just remembering it's just the end of that phrase, you know, these things that are in Jesus and just remembering back to, we talked about this with Michael Gorman when he had him on in Romans, this idea of union with Christ mm. uh, and even that prepositional phrase being in Jesus. Like, okay, am I remembering the gospel here in these things? And, and that had to be the thing that kept John going or Paul or Peter, whoever. So I don't get out of the first half of verse nine without stopping and saying there's so much to reflect on, yeah, yeah, even yeah, in those few few words. Yeah, let me, what do you let me add yeah. one thing on what you just said there, and that would be not only praying for our brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution, but how am I actively helping them? Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes prayer becomes this default. It's like, yeah, okay, cool, I pray for yeah. Thoughts and prayers, yeah. Yeah, but I think if we should be actively assisting them in whatever way we can. And mm. the fact that we live in the, perhaps the most powerful empire in the world, and we have the ability to, as a democratic system, to, to influence legislation uh, and influence our governments, to influence foreign policy, hey, we, sh we could be actively um, pursuing those things, or am I actively supporting them, training leaders as, as we do with Determined Truth, or whether it's supporting financially, or whether it's supporting, helping them go to get, get a good, better education, whatever it might be. The other thing is this, is the story of Jesus, you know, I've, I've been dealing with situations that, you know, in my ministry context, I'm just going to leave it at that, with people that are disgruntled with church mm. and with evangelicalism, and mm -hmm. they're ready to give up on church, and some of them have. And so, you know, pastoring them through that and guiding them through that and, and uh, helping them through that. And when a lot of people who listen to the podcast and others, you know, in the evangelical world out there going, I don't know what the problem is that you guys keep telling, saying there's a problem. Well, the first thing I'd say is there's a problem. And the young people especially are experiencing yeah. that problem. Mm -hmm. And if you don't see it, that's fine. But you need to start thinking about what are they seeing and why are they experiencing such a problem? Because they are really, really struggling with uh, what, what's going on there. But the thing that to latch onto is that it's about Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about what that Christian did or what that Christian did or what that church did or what that pastor said. I think I texted you last a couple of nights ago that I was watching a um, expose on a mega church. Yeah, yeah. And it and I got done. I was just grieved, and I was just grieved that this is so prevalent. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some people can watch this expose and go, "Okay, that happened." That movement in that church yeah but this is prevalent throughout almost a large segment of evangelical christianity and the young people are, are experiencing this and it's traumatic for them and so for me it just it simply comes back to you know what regardless of all that jesus is who he said he was and his resurrection proves that he really is the lord of lords and the king of kings hmm. and that's our starting point mm -hmm. and so sometimes you know when we do the a book of revelation study often i'll say I don't think I said this two weeks ago when we did chapter one, verses one through eight, that the book is about Jesus and say, it's about Jesus. So let's put all our other stuff aside for a minute here, because we can agree on this one. Mm -hmm. And then it's about Jesus. And let's find out who Jesus is and what it means and what it says, because, hey, that's the Lord that we worship. And then the point that we'll make more and more detail um, next time when we get back together is learning who Jesus is in the book of Revelation is really important because we're called to imitate him. Mm-hmm. We're called to be imitators of Jesus. And Jesus himself says in the parable of the sheep and the goats and says, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. Lord, when did we give you water when you were thirsty? When did we see you in prison and visit you? 
oh, when you did it to one of my people, you did it to me because mm-hmm. we are the embodiment of Christ to the world. And so I think that becomes really important also to say it starts with Jesus. And then I need to know that Jesus because I'm supposed to imitate them. So even if I am disgruntled with everything else I see in Christendom, and that's an overstatement, but I think a lot of people feel that way. I need to figure out how I can be a difference in, in the midst, in the middle of all that. Yeah. And it, let's close out with this because let's talk about people who are difference makers. Let's, I want to honor someone right now. Mm. Uh, so we're recording this on a Wednesday night. Last Friday uh, morning, mm. Tim Keller passed away. Right. And he's, he's someone who's hugely influenced in my life. Uh, and to mm. you and I, we're texting back and forth. We've shared some stuff, uh, some videos and, and whatnot uh, about him. But this is someone who, talk about someone who did faithful ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even as popular as he got, was still always trying to look for that person in the church who had been hurt. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's, yeah. he's ministering in Manhattan in the heart of yeah. <laughs> uh, of secular uh, Babylon and still trying to reach that person, even though he could have comfortably lived in the yes. celebrity of himself. And he just he's he's that one guy who I've feared for years saying, please don't let the shoe drop for this one. Yeah, let yeah, him yeah, be yeah. who he says yeah. who he seems to be. And just and just praise God for the resources he's given and how he seems to specifically yeah. reach out to folks, whether it's for the reason for God or making sense of God and just, you know, someone who kept Jesus at the center, even to the point of weeks before passing away and right and making video messages and just making sure, hey, keep focusing on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I'd love to honor someone like that who's just been influential in the life of so many people. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So cool. Hey, so next time we'll uh, continue back and let's, you know, speaking of Jesus, man, we're yeah, gonna we're gonna unpack some of these descriptions and and what yeah, is man. hairs of a head were like white like wool and what is yeah. a sash and long long robe what are all these things so we'll we'll unpack that a little bit more next time right yeah. amen cool awesome all right everyone thanks for hanging out see you guys next week I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast and we would love for you to share the work of determined truth with others please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.